Gile Piper. This is the Beyond the Curve podcast. Hi, this is Ryan Van. Thank you for joining us today. I'm a partner in the Chicago office of DLA Piper and practice in the area of labor and employment. I'm pleased today to be joined by my friend and colleague, Rita Patel, from our Washington, D.C. office, who practices in executive compensation and employee benefits. We are here today to talk to you about an incredibly timely topic, both in terms of how the world operates and in our individual practices, and that is the reopening of the economy and reopening of the workplace. As I'm certain you know and have heard from numerous public health officials, it is unlikely that there will be a vaccine for COVID-19 anytime within the near future and perhaps even as long as a year or more. Faced with that reality, employers are attempting to reopen and will be attempting to reopen over the next weeks and months and are faced with a variety of challenges from a safety standpoint, from a cost standpoint, and from a benefits and compensation standpoint. Rita and I are here to talk to you about our views on all of those things and the things that we've seen in recent weeks and months and what we expect going forward. And we really look forward to talking to you today. So Rita, good to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Ryan, as well. My name is Rita Patel, and I am a partner here at DLA Piper focused on executive compensation and qualified and non-qualified benefits. As Ryan mentioned, this is definitely a hot topic that employers are dealing with as their employees return to work, both physically and psychologically, and just in terms of what planning employers really need to think about. And as we've noted, we understand there's a vaccine that's still probably months or even more than a year away, and we're going to be living with COVID-19 for some time. So as we are returning to work and employees are feeling the need to come back and start with maybe their new normal, we are going to highlight some near-term strategies for what we believe U.S. employers would want to consider when bringing their employees back to work. So with that, Ryan, what are you seeing in terms of the hot button items as employers are considering screening methods? So the very first day they've got their employees coming back, what are some of the issues and questions that you're already getting about employees on that first day and things like screening? Sure. I think the issue is there's a lot of uncertainty about when things might be safe. And so I guess the best analogy I've heard is from a public health professional saying that essentially we're trying to layer together several layers of cheesecloth. Each one might not catch the infection, but if you do several proactive measures to try to prevent the spread, each one successively catches more and more and more to the point where you're protecting as well as you can. So It's a phased approach that we're seeing that involves a lot of different moving pieces. I'd say the starting point for that really is state guidance. And that's all over the news and will be for the months to come for sure. Which states are open for business? Which states have restrictive measures? Often jobs have certain requirements for protective equipment and distancing and things like that. So what we've seen is employers who are trying to balance getting people back in the workplace, complying with those, and then to your question, the testing aspect. Fortunately, the EEOC has reactivated pandemic guidance from H1N1. And what that does is it suspends the usual rules on medical testing when it involves a direct threat. And what that means in a typical circumstance is If an employee is a direct threat to his or herself or to another in the workplace, 
then an employer has more freedom to do medical tests. And that comes up often in situations where an employee might cause a problem driving equipment or other scenarios where somebody might be a danger in the workplace. But what it does here is it applies across the board to anyone who might be a threat for COVID-19. And it opens up the ability to specifically test employees for temperature. That's one thing we've seen quite a bit of in the past week. It's also expanded into actual COVID testing as well. So some employers have decided to do that or have decided to do it on a one-off or focused basis in the event they have a reason to suspect that an area of their business might need testing. Where I think it will go, though, is to antibody testing. Once the FDA has approved that, I think the EEOC has suggested that if there's a reliable testing method, that antibody testing might be appropriate as well. How far do you think some of this testing would go? I've heard from my clients that they are trying to figure out how do they bring back their employees in a systematic fashion that makes everyone feel safe and comfortable that they are able to come back to work and they will be safe and they have a working environment that really makes everyone feel comfortable. But they're, of course, concerned about privacy, right? right? And questions that they can ask and can't ask. So in that regard, From a benefit standpoint, we definitely look at what benefit plans are available, what benefits are generally being offered to employees in terms of they're not feeling well, and what can you talk about in terms of potential issues, particularly with privacy or any type of ADA or any other considerations you would say to employers that are doing some of these testing methods or screening methods, any practical issues that they would want to consider? Absolutely. It's an area that doesn't have a perfect answer. So to your point, there are privacy requirements. If you're going to do, in any context, ADA testing, you as the employer are to keep the results of those tests confidential. And where I think it has popped up the most, two areas. One is, if you're going to do temperature testing, necessarily you will have people walking in the front door. Some might get pulled aside Depending on what your equipment is for temperature testing, it might have an audible alarm for people who have a fever. And other people in line or nearby without a need to know may very well see that or hear that result and draw conclusions. The fact of a fever is something that needs to be kept confidential, and employers are balancing those risks. There's not a perfect way at the moment to balance all of that and to get people through conveniently and easily into the workplace. The other area where that has become a prominent issue is when somebody is gone for two weeks. Other people in the workplace notice that. You're balancing a competing right of privacy to that person, but also those around are nervous. And the approach that most are taking is to discuss with those who might be nearby, and I think employers would have an obligation to do that, that they may have been exposed and of the things that they may want to do to protect themselves and to monitor themselves, but to do so in a way that doesn't specifically name the employee. And it's really hard sometimes because there may be four people working in a workplace in one department and you notice when one person's gone. So it's an interesting area where there is really no perfect answer and employers are trying to do their best. And I want to touch one other part that you asked about, and that is the what you can and can't ask. 
So we've talked about the testing aspect. The other thing that has been opened up as a result of the EEOC pandemic guidance is the ability to ask questions about individuals. And so typically, the guidance from employment lawyers is you don't want to ask questions that could lead to a disability-related inquiry because it can put you in a lot of bad situations, depending on the answers and depending on what you do thereafter. Here, though, the EEOC has suggested that it is perfectly acceptable to ask about the symptoms. So as the CDC updates its symptoms, and I should note even this week or maybe late last week, they updated to include some new symptoms. But those are all things that you can ask employees about before they come in. Have you had a fever? Have you had a cough? Have you had a loss of taste or smell? And I suggest, and I think the right way to do it is to follow what the CDC is saying and adopt that as your question. What you can't do is ask, do you have any disabilities that would be made worse by this? That is a prohibited inquiry into a disability. And so the only way to really do that is to do it on a voluntary basis and allow em employees to disclose if they want to, if they'd like an accommodation or if they have a particular concern to talk about, but you can't make it mandatory. So I wanted to ask you, General, you mentioned some of the things you're looking at with relation to benefits and how they might apply. How is the framework working as far as what was in place? Does it fit the situation or what are the things that you're seeing when you're giving guidance? So what I am seeing right now, and it's interesting to see how quickly the government has reacted in terms of benefits in particular. What happened under the CARES Act was very interesting to see that there was a loosening of qualified plan requirements. So what employers really needed was the ability to get some of their employees cash quickly for particularly employees who had been furloughed or maybe who had been given reduced schedules or whose spouses, for that matter, or significant others or partners had financial issues. The rules under the qualified plans typically, such as the 401k and other types of qualified plans, have very restrictive rules as to when someone can take a distribution. So, for example, you can only take a loan under certain very stringent requirements. You can only take hardship distributions from your cash accounts in your 401ks under very stringent rules as well. So what we saw quickly was the government reacted and loosened the rules applicable to qualified retirement plans because they knew people needed cash right now. As you know, the PPP loans and all of the other financial incentives that the government is trying to really bridge for folks to get them past this period, it includes on the individual basis access to cash. So the retirement plan scheme was basically changed quite significantly to allow folks to take those distributions that did not have to be retirement age eligible if they were affected by COVID-19. There's now a increased amount that's available for loans. There is also the waiver of the required minimum distributions that applies to people over age either 70 and a half or over 72, because the reaction from all people who are affected was basically, we need cash right now, and how do we get it? So that was the first wave of what we started to see was the recognition that employers could 
choose to change their plans and choose to implement those optional provisions. Then there were changes also made right now to health and welfare plans to allow for a loosening of some of the standards that apply to flexible savings accounts, requiring a certain testing for COVID-19 to now be covered, requiring that when there is a vaccine, that that is covered, not subject to certain deductibles. There's been a lot of very targeted and I would call very well thought through changes to qualified plans. And then as time went on, a couple of weeks went on, a month went on, clients realized and employers realized that they might need to start looking at salary reductions and possibly either partial salary reductions or even deferrals. And that's really hit compensation and benefits very hard because those types of changes require very careful tax analysis and a very careful top-to-bottom review of how folks are getting paid. So we really have seen a lot of what I'm going to call targeted approaches to various aspects of both benefits and compensation. So we're definitely seeing changes, and all employers are having to be dynamic, in fact, and trying to figure out what fits best for them in terms of what their needs are on almost a couple-week-to-couple-week basis is what we're seeing. So I actually have a question for you on that. Sure. One of the things that seems to come up quite a bit in the discussions is how do you go about reducing some of those things? So if you have 401k matches or if you have a health plan and you have people who aren't working, how do you sort through that? So on the 401k plan side, it absolutely starts with your plan and what does it say? So there are some plans that are designed to be hardwired that provide for contributions that are mandatory or could be considered mandatory, such as safe harbor plans. There are other plans that are drafted in a discretionary manner that say the employer can choose whether to put in employer contributions. And you're right on the money that what employers looked for were ways to save cash because they were really looking at their week-by-week cash needs. For those that have, let's say, for example, $50,000 or $100,000 in matching contributions on a weekly basis, they looked at that as an opportunity to potentially have an immediate cash savings if they could stop their matching contribution or profit-sharing contributions. The issue became what could they do under the terms of their plans and how quickly could they do it. Some plans actually require notice prior to those cuts. Some do not. So it very much became... Let's figure out what can we do, how quickly can we do it, and what are the steps needed to do that, and how do we let our employees know. Most employees, or at least the reactions we were getting, is that the employees were very understanding, that they understood the changes were needed, and they were grateful that the employers were trying to figure out ways to have cash immediately. So we were seeing that those cuts happening, and I think employers were picking and choosing what made sense for their population. And how is it applied with regard to health insurance coverage? Because that seems to be something that has come up quite a bit with people instituting furloughs and temporary reductions. So what we're finding with a lot of the health insurance programs is that most employers are reluctant to take their employees off insurance given the virus, given potential health issues and medical needs that employees and their dependents might need. So what most employers were trying to do is confirm if they are fully insured that they could continue coverage for their furloughed employees. And some plans have active employment requirements. My understanding is most 
if not all, fully insured carriers were continuing that coverage, understanding the unique circumstances here. It's not a typical furlough situation. So they were definitely on their toes, most employers, checking with their carriers if they were fully insured. If they were self-insured, they were just making sure that if they needed to make any technical changes, they did so. But I think health insurance was one place where employers were very, very sensitive to making sure that if they could cover their employees, they would. And as you can see from the government's recent pronouncements, they're loosening the standards for when employees have to file for their claims. They're very much being protective in this regard. So I think you're going to see that trend continue, is my prediction. So Ryan, let's stay on the topic of compensation and cash flow and how employers are really trying to deal with their ability to stay in business and still keep their employees on their payroll and actively engaged as much as possible or able to completely return to work once they are able to do so safely. I know there's been lots and lots of discussion about government programs and other programs that employers really are able to tap into. And I know this is a huge topic, but can you give a brief summary of, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program and what you're seeing still and the 10,000-foot view? Because I think that would be very helpful for folks to understand how employers are functioning on a week-to-week and month-to-month basis right now. Absolutely. And I'll say that it has been probably the hottest topic of all is how do we preserve cash? How do we lean on government programs to essentially help subsidize the workforce. And while that applied early on in this during the furlough process using unemployment, especially the boost that has been provided via the CARES Act, but I think it's equally usable in the reopening scenario and the coming back to work scenario. So as a very general overview of the CARES Act, as it relates to most employers, there are a few key things. One, as you mentioned, there's a Paycheck Protection Program. And the idea there was to provide a forgivable loan to smaller businesses to allow them to pay employees over a period of two months and pick up some additional related costs and even some real estate-related costs as well. We found that that's been incredibly attractive, although it has also morphed pretty incredibly over the past three or four weeks into a complicated tangle of regulations and guidance. So Definitely a useful program if you're eligible. It's just a question of with what we're seeing, whether you are or not eligible. And then once you are, how you use the money and whether you can bring enough people back or if you choose to add some additional things like picking back up on the 401k or things that you left off during the furlough. Some of those things are interesting questions. The other thing the CARES Act did was add, as I mentioned, unemployment from the federal government. Typically, unemployment's a state benefit, and it's frankly not very high. It's designed to encourage people to go back to work. So it could range from $250 a week to maybe $800 at the high end. What the federal government did in the CARES Act was add on $600 a week. And that adds on whether you're drawing the lowest amount or the highest amount under the state coverage. It's a flat add-on starting with $1 if you're eligible through the state. And so employers have found that to be very valuable, and I think it will continue to be valuable through its expiration in the end of July, in particular on the ramp up. If the headcount is not full, employers can use a rolling furlough to allow, particularly with the reduced 
headcount on the floor of a facility, you may not need everybody, but you might want the people back. So you could put them on a rolling furlough, continue to use unemployment to pay for those weeks off. And I think that's very helpful. One other way I think the CARES Act unemployment subsidy can help, although I think it's not been quite as helpful as many thought it might be, was it added subsidies for states to create work-sharing arrangements and shared time arrangements. So essentially, if you have two people who do the same job, they split the job, they split days, and it allows employers to pair cohorts together. So if one group falls ill, the other can swap in and you're not intermingling employees. What it also allows is reduced headcount, but keeping the same people with the business. The CARES Act made it so that those people can get through their state programs if the state adopts it. And I think 28 or 30 states have done so right now. If they adopt a work-sharing program, then those individuals get unemployment compensation for the time they're not working. But the huge kicker is they also get that $600. Wow. So there have been employers who gain a benefit there in having the government pick up part of or even a lot of their payroll. So it sounds like a lot of planning almost is necessary if what I'm hearing. You've got a lot of programs available to you. You've got a lot of levers that can get pulled. But for employers, it sounds to me like they're going to have to very carefully consider how they want to pull which lever when and maybe even very strategically do so. And I guess that in one other program, and I don't know what your experience is, but there are other loan programs that employers are eligible for. And I think they're often referred to as the main street or the larger loans that are available to companies, but they have some compensation restrictions associated with them. And I am seeing that a lot of employers are not so excited about trying to figure out some of those compensation restrictions, at least on some of the larger loans. So I know there's a lot of different levers that can get pulled. And that seems to be the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of employers is what fits them and what can they take advantage of. Yeah. And I think layering it together with the facility needs and things that the states are requiring that impact their headcount too. So like I mentioned, there are safety protocols that employers are voluntarily adopting, but also some are mandated by states. So it may make sense to split your workforce into cohorts so that you have a continuous operation plan if a group gets sick. And it's a way to isolate groups of employees from each other and keep operations going. I think that also leads into the PPE discussion, which has been a pretty common question lately. And we all know that the CDC has recommended cloth masks in public, and many states have even made that a requirement. Employers have quite a few regulations if they wade into the PPE realm. And there's a lot more than we can talk about here. But In particular, if you're talking about masks, if you're going to use N95 masks or other respirators, there's an entire OSHA program that you have to follow that includes medical testing and fit testing, and it's a very detailed program. If you're using regular cloth masks, that's not nearly the same level of requirements as what you have to do as an employer. So there's a whole litany of things to look at from a PPE standpoint and physical approach to the workplace and who you want to have there. But you're right, it ties into a lot of the different levers that you have to pull and whether you can work it all out perfectly so that you're drawing money from the government, you have your workers coming back, you have the benefits covered, and it is quite an interesting approach to look at it all together. 
Yeah, maybe this is a good time to talk about union and non-unionized workforces. We very much have to consider what has been agreed to or bargained by union organizations, how unions and non-union workforces are being impacted or what could possibly be looking for labor implications in the future. If we're going to see employee activism, any type of duties to bargain, and these changes you're talking about making in the workplace, are those things that you think employers will start to look at now in the future or in the horizon? Or how do you see that sort of playing out in terms of next steps as well as another group of employees that are going to be really thinking through how does this impact them? Absolutely. And it has been an interesting area to follow. Unions are in a unique situation here where they have a competing interest that they want to keep their constituents employed and making money. But also, of course, there's an enhanced scrutiny on protective gear and precautions taken by the employer. So I do think in the straight union context, there is almost always going to be bargaining required because like almost everything else with this virus, nothing in our current rules fits quite right. And so it's very unusual that a CBA is going to have the ability to do a lot of the things that are going to be required as part of this, the testing, the shift alterations, the different reporting structures that might happen, job duties, all kinds of things that need to be discussed. And what we've seen is, by and large, the unions are reacting to this well, too, because they realize it doesn't work. You mentioned activism. That has been something that's come out quite a bit lately, too, is, of course, we've talked about reopening. There's a huge segment of the economy that has been open, and those workers have been working in situations of potential exposure. And a lot of those workers and representatives of theirs and hopeful representatives of theirs have started demanding hazard pay, more equipment, more coverage for sick pay. And I fully expect that that's something that will continue to dominate the news and the employment landscape over the year as people are coming back, because certainly there will be more opportunity for people to be exposed. And it's a ripe opportunity for workplace activism. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be, no matter which way to look, there's going to be some type of change or a reevaluation of the workplace just generally. And I was asked an interesting question about whether we think things will be changing permanently or things will go back to the way they were, or will it be too hard to go back to what people would consider to be normal workplace environments or changes that maybe were just limited. A lot of the questions that we receive right now are a lot of employees and executives have bonus programs and compensation structures that were, in fact, negotiated and dealt with way before COVID-19 was even thought of. And those types of compensation packages and arrangements have performance conditions in them, have certain metrics in them. And as much as we're right now living in the moment, I think people are starting to think about what changes will be temporary and what changes will be permanent. And I think there is a real shift right now in terms of when will employers be ready to start talking about the future and what their compensation is going to look like and what their benefits are going to look like in the future. And I don't know, if Brian, you're getting this question as well, but some of my clients who already have their employees who are either working 
already back at the workplace or have been working remotely are trying to figure out how do they look at these types of benefits and compensation arrangements and try to make sure that their employees stay incentivized, because that seems to be also one of the issues I think employers are dealing with. And I know from a benefits and compensation perspective, we are really seeing our clients look at it in a holistic fashion and trying to figure out, for example, if they've done reductions or they have made changes in benefits that are having to unfortunately save cash in the short run, what might they do in the long run? Or if they've got bonus programs that are no longer incentivizing to their employees, are they going to change those and how long will they stay in these holding patterns? So we are seeing very much the cost reduction definitely occurring and then trying to look to the future to see how are we going to make some of these changes either temporary or maybe some of these changes will be permanent but with a slightly different angle to them where, for example, metrics may be changed, goals may be changed, safety may become a very important part of your performance metrics. Are you finding as well that employers are asking you about permanent versus temporary changes, or are they still navigating the entire workforce right now? Thanks, Rita. Yeah, there are a mix of both permanent and urgent changes. I think the most urgent thing right now is what happens when you have somebody who tests positive or somebody who gets exposed in the workplace. And I think that plays actually into not just the urgent, what do you do today, what do you do tomorrow, but it also plays into your planning for the future. Because as we've been told by numerous doctors and public health officials, this will be with us for a while, unfortunately. So there needs to be a protocol that the employers have to decide what to do quickly if somebody tests positive. So I think that's one aspect. You mentioned certainly safety will be an enhanced focus going forward. I think there are long-term plans on remote work. From all reports that we're getting, many organizations are surprised at how well they've been able to keep up remotely. And so I think a certain segment of the business world will continue to be remote and remote more often, even when they do come back. You're right, too, that I think compensation and goals and all of those things will have to be adjusted for this year. And it's something that I think we'll have to see how quickly businesses are able to emerge and the economy is able to come back. But those are conversations that are beginning to be had and whether to readjust goals and certainly for high performers who have performed through the crisis. So that and engagement of public health officials and state governments to try to figure out what employers can do and help the community. I think those are things that we've seen on an overall basis. Finally, of course, the cost reduction. I don't think there are many businesses that are looking at this as a net positive on their cash flows this year. And so for that reason, there will be continued belt tightening across the board. So with that, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and uh, enjoyed spending time with you on this topic. It's certainly one that is of immense interest, both personally and professionally. So thank you very much, Rita. I couldn't thank you enough, Ryan. This has been a great conversation to figure out how employers are going to be looking at their unique situations and trying to figure out how to solve problems And it seems to me that what I've taken away from our conversation is no one size fits all. And so for employers that are maybe at the beginning stages of 
bringing their employees back to work or they already have them back to work and trying to navigate through that or trying to make sure their workforce is intact a year from now. It sounds like everyone's at these different stages. So I've really enjoyed our conversation and trying to understand both employment benefits and compensation and how they're all just so intertwined and such an important part of our lives and how our employers and our clients and individuals will be navigating for some time to come. So it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. This podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and listener. All information, content, and materials discussed are for general informational purposes only. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this information without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. 